themselves, well, you never hear people preaching on the book of Revelation, do you? And they turned up, and what were we doing? But we were teaching from the book of Revelation. As you know, I've shared with you that God spoke to me late last year, and I thought he said, I want you to go all through the book of Revelation. We probably won't do it over the next 26 Sundays, but we will get there eventually. It's not an easy book to teach from because so much has been written about it and there are so many different ways that theologians and Bible teachers have approached it over the years. At this point, of course, we're looking at the letters to the seven churches. We did a couple of those letters last week. We're going to have a look at two more today. And most of the theologians and commentators who have written about these letters say that they have application at three different levels. There was one level, the history or the times back then. Early church, we're talking here, less than a hundred years after Jesus was born. And uh, these churches existed in what was then called Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey today. So most of these churches were in what is now known as Turkey. So there was an application historically to these churches. But also, we can see in what God is speaking through the angel who uh, brought a vision to John, we see that there's commentary here that applies to the church today. And it's worth our while to ask ourselves where the church actually sits today. Are we sitting in a place where God might commend us or are we sitting in a place where God might have some issues with us or are we actually, like five out of those seven churches, in a place where he has both commendations for us and issues? The third level of application, of course, is to us as individuals, and that's where it gets a little bit scary. When we start applying the principles that are raised in the letters to our own uh, situation, it really brings things home to us. So there are these three levels, and it's worth looking at the letters to the churches at all of those levels. So we're going to have a look now at uh, Revelation 2. This first letter in Revelation 2 is to the church at Pergamon. Sometimes that's called Perga Pergamos. You'll read it in different translations. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamon. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Now Pergamon was a prosperous city. Historians say somewhere between 100,000 and 200,000 people lived there. So it was a fairly large city by standards of the day. The city had allied itself to Rome very early on and it was a, another one of these centres of the imperial cult where the emperor was worshipped as a god. And the problem that God had with the church in Pergamum 
was that it was a compromising church. Back in those days, if, if you engaged in the imperial cult, you were okay. But if you actually denied that the emperor was a god and chose to worship whom you believed was the one true god, then you were open to a lot of repression and persecution. So it was a pretty tough thing to be a member of the church in those days. God starts this message by saying, I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword. What does that remind you of? The Word of God, isn't it? See, the Word of God is characterised in the New Testament as a two-edged sword. And so God is referring here to the fact that He is the one in whom resides truth. You won't find truth in any of the cults. You won't find truth in the imperial cult. And there were other cults in the city at that time as well. There was a large temple, for example, to the god Augustus in Pergamum. But you won't find truth in following any other god but the one true living God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who gave his son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice once and for all to set us free from sin and to bring us into God's truth. So that's the two-edged sword. And it was diametrically opposed to the wrong teaching in the church at Pergamum. Diametrically opposed. And sadly, sometimes today, untruth is preached in churches or is practiced by people who think of themselves as regular churchgoers. There's another term which is used in here. Satan has his throne in the city. It probably is another reference to this imperial cult. Although there were, as I said, other cults in the city at the time. But the Romans themselves were very, very strong on the idea of emperor worship. So God has commended the church on the grounds that they refused to deny him even when one of their number was martyred. But then we read a little bit further. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, teaching like Balaam is any teaching that goes against the Scriptures. If you go back to uh, the book of Numbers, around chapter 31, you'll see the story there. Balaam was a prophet, and uh, he 
he realised that the only way that Israel could be defeated would be if their eyes were turned away from their God. And that's why there was this emphasis on the sins which God, or which in God's view are most abominable. Sexual sin is one, and eating food which was dedicated or offered to idols was another. So the strategy in Balaam's day was to get Israel to sin because sin separates a community from God. In fact, as I noted last week, if you go back and look at Hebrew words for sin, the emphasis is not so much on doing stuff which is wrong, it's about breaking relationship. And of course, that's what sin does. It breaks our relationship with God. And so they realise that if you can drag Israel away from their relationship with God, then it would be possible to defeat them. And this is what was going on in the church in Pergamum. Uh, of course, there was a lot of food offered to idols. Um, food and sex, they seem to be the most common uh, things associated with the worship of the gods. And uh, the Romans persecuted people who would not eat meat that had been sacrificed or given over to their God. So it was, again, it was pretty tough to stand up for your Christian faith in that city. Because to do so meant that you had to reject meat that had been dedicated to the gods. And incidentally, one of the reasons why we say grace today is to cover our food in case it's been offered to idols. That's one of the reasons. It, 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 it cleanses, if you like, food from the influence of idol worship. And of course, some of our food is. If you pick up any, any container which is halal certified, guess what? It's already been dedicated to a false god. That doesn't mean you, you should never eat it, but I would strongly recommend that you pray over it before you do. I avoid it if I possibly can, but um, you've got to sort that one out between you and God. Some uh, writers have suggested that Balaam was actually the nickname of a false prophet who lived at the time and who was actually teaching in the church. And uh, either interpretation is, is reasonable in the context of, of the time. The whole point about it is there was wrong teaching in the church that led people into sexual immorality and led people to eating food that had been offered to idols. The Nicolaitans feature again in the letter to the Church of Pergamon. We talked about them last week. Uh, whatever was the history of the Nicolaitans, the one thing we know for sure is that they were what we call dualists. They believed in the separation of the sacred and the secular. <clears throat> I mentioned a little earlier that there's this contrast between the church gathered and the church um, separated. Or, or the church scattered. Now, the Nicolaitans would see the church scattered. Once you're out there, there is no need to adhere to anything that you're talking about in church. 
And so they were like people who came to church on Sunday and sat there piously and raised their hands and, and they tithed. They did all those things on Sunday, but on Monday they went off and they committed grievous sin against God. That's why God says, I hate them. It's, in his eyes, it was far worse to pretend to be something on Sunday that was different to what you were on Monday. It was worse to do that than not to acknowledge him at all. And uh, this Nicolaitan thinking was quite common in the church at the time. And, and still the idea that there's separation between the sacred and the secular, it's quite strongly held in church circles. And uh, you'll even hear pastors say, we're different to the rest of you. I've, I've heard many say that. Because somehow we've been separated. But guess what? The fact that I'm a pastor does not separate me from you because all of us are ministers. If you read Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, it doesn't say that pastors are to specialise in salvation and that everybody else is to specialise in working hard so that they can bring lots of ties into the church. It doesn't say that at all. It actually says, well, a paraphrase it is, in going about your daily business, let your whole life represent the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, in fact, is what the commission, the Great Commission means. See, there's no separation. When I was, did you see me walking out, going for a walk yesterday with um, Evangeline? No. Oh, well, that's, I probably didn't wait. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure I saw you driving home. Did you go out yesterday afternoon? Just, well, just, can we just have this in the conversation? <laughs> oh, no one is supposed to know. Oh, right. <laughs> anyway, we won't, we won't go there. It's okay. We're no, safe. It's okay. But I, because um, Jeanette and Ainsley haven't been all that well lately, and, and um, Evangeline was very tired but wouldn't settle. <coughs> I just took her for a walk. And you see, that's just as spiritual as what I'm doing now. That was the point I wanted to make. See, there's nothing that isn't spiritual because we're connected with God all the time and He's got an interest in everything we do. Not only in the sense that He cares about us, but because everywhere we go, we represent him. Everywhere we go. When I had a conversation with a woman who had her two little children down in the playground, I was representing Jesus Christ. The words I spoke, uh, the way I made eye contact, all of those things can be taken in a way which is either honouring of God or not. So there's no separation. When, when, I, when I go to my, my uh, Monday role, as CEO of Leaders Institute, as far as God is concerned, that's not more nor less spiritual than me rushing around this morning to try and get my discussion point finished in time for church, which I did because we, we had an interesting couple of days in, in our lives. Um, there is no separation. And you see, when you start thinking that there's something different about the spiritual stuff you do on Sunday, and the so-called secular stuff you do on Monday, you become a dualist. And I can guarantee eventually you will live your life Monday through Saturday based on different standards to what you apply on Sunday. And that's why God hates it. 
There's no distinction. There's no, you will never see a reference to the word secular in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Everything, everything is spiritual. And verse 16 there, here's this call for repentance again. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Them refers to the false teachers, among whom, of course, is Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And again, we follow the pattern. Uh, God calls out, anyone who has ears, anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. What's this manna hidden away in heaven? Well, the Jewish Christians, people who come out of a Jewish or the Israel uh, tradition, they would have understand, uh, understood that this is a reference to the Messianic era because they believed that the, the so-called promised manna or this uh, manna in heaven the, or the hidden away manna, it, it was part of the restoration to Israel of the original vessels for, for worship. And uh, you might recall back way back in Genesis that some of the manna was actually put into the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the, the Jews believed that the vessels for worship and the Ark, including the manna in the Ark, they would all be restored in the Messianic age. We understand it more as the promises of the future, the promises that often motivate us to keep going when times get tough. It's the promise of eternal life with Him in heaven. There's one more concept here that probably we need to talk about, and that is the idea of the white stone. There are probably 10 or 12 different understandings of what the white stone actually means. I just want to focus on two, which to my way of thinking are most appropriate in the context of, of the letter. A white stone was used to indicate purity and life. So here God is saying, right, if you're victorious, that is, if you remain steadfast in relation to the truth of God, the white stone is representative of uh, purity and life that come from your adherence to the truth. Another very interesting use of the white stone was that jurors used to cast a white stone to signify that in their judgment um, someone who'd been charged with a crime was actually innocent. And of course that applies to us, eh? Because Jesus has effectively cast a white stone declaring our innocence. So if you are victorious... 
the white stone can represent purity, because you're pure in God's eyes, or it can represent innocence, because through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have become innocent of all our sin. <coughs> that was a pretty short letter, and there was a lot in it, eh? So let's move on to uh, the letter to the church in Thyatira. This church, it turns out, was a corrupt church. You'll often see that little heading uh, in Bibles in the book of Revelation. So the angel says to John, write this letter to the angel. Remember, the, there's an angel over every church. To the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service and your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. That sounds like a pretty good report card. You know, when I do my annual review with the chair of my board of directors, I'd like him to be able to say, I can see your constant improvement in all the things that you are doing. Again, in this city, the imperial cult was well established. It wasn't easy to be a Christian. And these are great commendations, aren't they? You have love, you have faith, you serve well, and you have patient endurance in the face of repression and outright persecution. Interestingly, and I don't know how to explain it, the term Son of God is only used here in this, in, in verse 18. It's not used anywhere else in the book of Revelation. But I don't really think that that has any deep significance. So we've got a pretty good commendation here. But then we read this. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols, just like Pergamum. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. Those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Now the idea of Jezebel, the Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, most likely that's something like what we would call a worldview, a way of thinking. Jezebel, of course, was a, an historical person, right? And she was a pretty nasty piece of work. But actually, there's no evidence that she herself ever committed sexual immorality. But nevertheless, sexual immorality has been associated with Jezebel uh, down through history. The point is this, there were false prophets, there was a way of thinking that led people away from the truth. <clears throat> and again, we see here reference to sexual immorality and to eating food offered to idols. There's evidence here that God is patient. Verse 21, I gave her time 
to repent. You know, if I was God, I probably would have called the whole show to a close a long time ago. Because I definitely don't have the same patience he does. And I often think that a little bit unlike us, God is able to experience multiple emotions simultaneously. I don't know, because he's God and I'm not. He's infinite and I'm finite. But see, we find it extremely difficult, for example, to feel sad and happy at the same time. Or peace and discontent at the same time. We have one emotion at any particular point in time. I kind of have this image of God at the same time overjoyed when he sees us because we've made that commitment to become followers of Jesus Christ. We don't do it perfectly, but in our hearts we're actually committed to Jesus Christ. We desire relationship with God through him. That brings God great joy. The whole of heaven rejoices when a single sinner makes that decision to turn his or her life over to Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, God has this wonderful sense of elation when he sees all of us Christians. But then, at the same time, he experiences anguish because he knows some have rejected him and he knows what lies ahead of them for eternity because ultimately they will go into the lake of fire with the devil and the demons. So on the one hand, he's overjoyed and on the other hand, he's filled with anguish because... He's looking at us both. And we can't experience those emotions simultaneously. And so God, at least from our own finite perspective, is very patient. And he has given this world time to repent. But guess what? If there's no turning away from immorality, God says, I will throw her on a bed of suffering and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. Some uh, commentators argue that the whole point here is not about actual sexual immorality, but what it is about is turning away from God and embracing a different worldview. When I, when I was preparing this, one of the thoughts that came to me was one of the biggest idols in the world today is what I would call secular humanism, which is based on the importance of the self. Which is ultimately what really matters is my own personal fulfilment. That's, that's the ultimate destination of the, the thinking around secular humanism. And the church is full of secular humanism. You can just hear it in the expressions because it's a very subtle thing. And, you know, I talked, remember some time ago, I did a, a discussion point which was titled Against Maslow. Yeah. And I went through that whole thing and said how wrong it was. No biblical, got no empirical basis anyway, but it's got no biblical basis at all. And the reason is the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives allows us to transcend anything that we might experience in life. And that's why Christians can be filled with joy even in the midst of being tortured. So it's probably wrong for us to, to sort of think, well, we're not like this church because, you know, we're not all committing sexual immorality and 
We're not going to go out the back there and start consuming food that's already been offered up to idols. But one of the things we need to very carefully assess in our own lives is how well does our thinking actually line up with God's Word? How does it line up with God's Word? And how much of it is actually influenced by what comes to us through the media and is actually secular humanism? And of course, we go on to say, uh, we go on and read this, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have followed the false teaching, so-called deeper truths. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They'll have the same authority I received from my Father and I will also give them the morning star. There's a message here, isn't there, that if we can rise above all of the temptations that come our way, if we can resist false teaching, and by the way, you shouldn't just take what I say as being correct. You really need to go and do your own research and ask yourself the question, is the truth being taught even here? Because I think it is, but you've got to be satisfied for yourself that the truth is being taught because you don't need to shift very far from the truth to end up living your life amiss. So to all who are victorious, I will give authority over all the nations. That is, of course, a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ when there will, in fact, be Christians who are placed in positions of great authority. The morning star, well, that would have been understood certainly in the... Uh, context of society at the time because the morning star of course is Venus right it's the, the star that you can see the bright it's not actually a star anyway but um, it's a bright light in the, in the, in the heavens and uh, the Romans revered Venus and of course they worshipped Venus Venus was one of their gods but also the morning star refers to Jesus Christ so Venus is so so called the first star to rise what was Jesus Christ? He was the first resurrected of men. The first to come to life again. And of course that will be the experience of all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We might have physical death. I might die tomorrow. I'm too busy. I really can't. But who knows? Right? But I will be resurrected. I won't be the first. Jesus will be the first. The first of many. And so that has connotations of our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we're able to remain victorious over all of the temptations, and it's not just the big stuff, it's very, very subtle. Um, I don't watch a lot of movies, but I, I often come home and Jeanette will be watching movies, and there, is, there are such subtle messages that, that come through 
the, the scripted movies and, and the plays and, mm. and uh, the words in the songs that we, we listen to. And you have to, I'm not saying you should never watch any of those things, not by any means, but you've just got to be careful. I know when my daughter Ainsley was going through university, they, uh, that university, they had a very postmodern approach to the way in which they taught education. You don't have to really worry too much about what postmodern modernism is, but what it means is there is no absolute truth. And that Neil's truth and my truth might not be the same, but they're both true because what is true for him, what's true for him is true, and what's true for me is true, even though our truths are not the same. Right? There was a postmodern house designed that had stairs that led nowhere. Right? And that's where you'll end up if you become a postmodernist. But there's very, very strong postmodern flavour in the teaching, and uh, that bothered Ainsley a lot. And we used to have discussions about it. And I used to often say to her, you're at university because you want to be an early childhood educator. So you don't have to take on these people unless you're absolutely certain that God is calling you to do it. Because if you take them on, you'll fail. I know that. I'm a university academic. I've been a university academic for 40 years. I know what it's like. So what we used to do, though, she agreed... And, and she never felt that God was saying, I want you to stand up and tell my lecturers they're teaching us the heap of rubbish. Right? <laughs> it wasn't that rubbish, of course. But And uh, so what we used to do, when she wrote assignments, I'd sit down with her and we'd go through all the authors that she was expected to read through and we'd just sit down and work out what their worldview was. And there was never anyone with a Christian worldview. And so we talked about it and she was able to write about it without ever being influenced by that wrong thinking and without ever losing her strong stance as a Christian. And then, of course, she went on to work in early childhood and eventually became the director of a childcare centre. So we had to be careful. And I'm not saying that we should withdraw from all these things. I'm not saying we should put an axe through the television set or anything like that. But we need to be aware because you can rest assured, these churches didn't set out to upset God. And clearly they had a strong focus on righteousness. Because God commends every single church. But yet five out of the seven, he has something against. Because subtly false teaching eroded the truth from amongst them the members of those churches. And it's very, very interesting to me, and a little bit scary, that God never says, because of all the good stuff you've done, I'm going to reward you. What he says, where you've gone wrong, you're going to pay for it. That's pretty scary to me. Now, don't let this ruin your life because we've got a lot of revelation left, all right? We've got a lot, a lot left. But I think it's, it's worth thinking about, isn't it? Yeah. That a church which only has some truth is really not much help to God. And we have to do everything we can to guard against false teaching in the church that could lead people to literal um, sexual immorality and literal eating of food offered to idols but perhaps more importantly it can lead us 
to thinking which is not fully aligned with the Word of God. Well, on that note, I'll show you a little... Um, oh, I've just got the last, last bit of the letter of the church. I should do that because Ainsley spent so long getting this PowerPoint to work this morning. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So certainly I hope that this morning we might have understood a little better the letter to those two churches than perhaps we might have done in the, in the past. So I thought as we go out to our community time this morning, we put a little slide up of the island of Patmos as it is today. It's a, a tourist mecca, but there are still some very, very ancient buildings there that people go to because they think that's where the Apostle John uh, was uh, resident for some time. So, God bless you all. Very happy to stay and, and pray with anybody. Uh, one thing I felt pretty convicted about in recent times is that even though you know we know we're surrounded by people who are already followers of Jesus Christ, one day someone is going to work, walk through that door who isn't. So, I want to make a practice of inviting anybody who doesn't yet know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, just come and chat with us. We're not going to embarrass anybody ever. I've been in churches that do that. You know, heads down, eyes closed, and then you put your hand up, and then all of a sudden you come out the front, and everybody stands up. <laughs> I won't do that to anybody, but I, you know, my life has been absolutely transformed because of my relationship with Jesus Christ. And some of you know my story. I could well be dead today through suicide if I hadn't been rescued by Jesus Christ. And I don't want to see anybody go through life in the way that I was way back then because God well and truly picked me up out of the miry clay and he set my feet upon the rock of Jesus Christ.